Um, I am a, I'm a pastor in Lawrenceville, Georgia, at a church called Ivy Creek. Um, representing in here, too. Um, it's, a, it's a great church. I love being there. Um, it's one of my favorite places I've ever been in my life. I've learned a lot being a pastor there over the last year. And um, I'm very thankful that I get to come back and talk to college students because you, know, you guys are my favorites to talk to. I love being a campus pastor for seven years. It was seven great years of my life. And uh, so thank you for letting me come here and speak to you uh, this weekend. Um, I want to um, start by telling you a story about something that happened to me uh, when I was in seminary. Uh, when I was in seminary, I'm going to kick that water over. When I was in seminary, um, I went to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, and, um, wow. And, um, and uh, um, one time I came home. I lived in South Georgia at the time. I came home for a little while. And then I was traveling back to Jackson. And uh, instead of driving, I had flown. So I was flying back. And uh, you get on the airplane in Atlanta, and what they do is they fly you to Birmingham, and you stop. And then they fly you to Jackson, and you get off the plane. So um, <clears throat> we get on the plane, and I, I'm just um, with this woman. There's a woman sitting next to me. I don't know her. Um, it's one of those planes that have like two on one side, three on the other, you know, and we're in the plane. The plane takes off, and uh, it's a great flight. You know, it's cool. Great peanuts, uh, great drinks. We're flying over. We, we start to descend. And you know how, for those of you that have been in a plane before, you know how it is like when you start descending in the plane. And um, we, we came down in Birmingham. And as we did, I was sitting on the window side, and I noticed that it was dark. There were lots of clouds as we were going down. And so, um, you know how usually you'll go down, the plane will start kind of descending, and the nose will pick up, and it'll start slowing down, you know, as you go through the clouds. And usually you go through the clouds, and you come out, and it's... You know, you just gently land. And um, we were going through, and like it was, the plane was shaking a little bit because of, the, um, because of the weather. It was dark. And we go into this cloud, and the cloud is black. And um, it gets really dark in the cabin. And I noticed that, like, the plane doesn't nose up. The plane stays down. It's very strange. And um, I'm getting a little freaked out. And um, I'm kind of looking out the window, kind of figuring out what's going on. I thought, you know, maybe we were higher than I thought we were. And we just aren't supposed to nose up yet. And so we keep going. And we're going faster and faster. And then suddenly the cloud goes, whoof. And I look. And the tower for the airport was right there on the side of the airplane. And the airplane, like, banks real hard to one side and, like, dives down. Stuff starts falling out of the overhead bins. People start throwing up in the airplane. It's ridiculous, okay? People are scared. They're screaming. The plane, like, kind of veers up and we, we kind of jack up in the air and go straight up and get back above the, the cloud again and kind of, kind of level back out. And we start doing circles over Birmingham for about 20 minutes. And I felt like I was going to throw up. The lady next to me was just like praying. She was grabbing my hand and praying with me. And I was so scared. My heart was, I mean, I, I thought I was going to die. Um, and so we, the, the captain comes on and says, sorry about that turbulence. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll be descending again into Birmingham because of the weather in about 10 minutes. And so we're like, Ugh. So we start to go back again. I'm really afraid. I'm praying with the lady next to me, like vocally, loudly in the plane. We're starting to go back down. We're coming down and... and Finally, it noses up. The clouds kind of pass. I see the runway. We hit it and we land. And, I, and I'm shaking. And everyone else is shaking in the plane. Some of them got hit in the head by stuff that fell out. It was just really scary. We get out of the plane. We have a little bit of a layover before the next flight. And I get out and I start walking around and I'm just thinking, I'm not okay with getting back on the plane again. I just, I don't want to do it. Um, this is really scary to me. I, I'm, I mean, I was really terrified. And so I go and I pick up a phone and I call my dad, okay? Um, and I'm like, hey, dad, I, 
I was just on this plane, and uh, I'm scared to death. What do I do? I don't know what to do. I'm like like 28 or something. I can't remember how old I was. And, and my dad, dad's like, calm down. I know you're scared. I'm going to pay to rent you a car, and you can just drive the rest of the way to Jackson. And so I do, and I drive the rest of the way to Jackson. Um, and I can just remember feeling when we got on the ground, and I mean, just kind of shaky, and, and getting off the airplane, and sitting down, and just taking a deep breath, and thinking, I was not okay. I was just afraid. And I felt very out of control. Like I had no control over what was going on. Um, have y'all ever felt that way? Like where you just don't feel like you have any control and you know you're not okay? I had a, um, a young couple in our church recently. Um, they're, uh, I think the, the father's like 42, the mother's 35. They have a little girl that's... 11, a little boy that's 7, and the father and the son with some other family members were hiking up Stone Mountain in Atlanta. And the father got tired and had to sit down. He got tired and he had to sit down again. And he had a heart attack and he died on the mountain. And his son was there. And I get a phone call and I'm like, you've got to go see her. Uh, So I go see her with some elders from our church. And we sit down with her. And I remember walking up to her and like hugging her and just looking at her and say, are you all right? And she just said, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. Um, I think we all have this, have felt this feeling of sort of being out of control, not okay in our lives. And it's a really terrifying place for us to be. No one likes feeling that way. Um, But I think as we look at what we're going to talk about this weekend, I think I want to open up and just say to you that that may be the best place of all for you to be. That knowing that you're not in control and knowing that you're not okay may be the best place possible for you to be. Uh, This weekend, we're going to look at the terrifying yet beautiful idea of God's kingdom and that God brings his people into a kingdom. And as he does so... um, My hope is that um, you'll want to be a part of that, even though it's terrifying, uh, because it is the best thing possible. Let's read, uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll read Mark chapter 1, and then we'll talk a little bit about this kingdom. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask now that you would help us uh, to not be afraid to enter into a place where we're out of control. And that you would help us not to be afraid to enter into a place where we're not okay. A place where you're in control. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see what it means that you're the king. And though terrifying, we would want to be there. We pray that you would convince us, Father, that you being the king is good news. And that you would mold us and change us into something very different because of that. And I pray this in Jesus' name because he loves us. Amen. Mark chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me, he who is my, after he, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, um, before we kind of look at this passage, we've got to talk about what he means at the end when he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, now I know a lot of you come from church background, some of you don't. um, And you've heard the word gospel if you've ever been to RUF, I'm certain. But I want to take a minute and just talk about what that means because it means lots of things in this world today. Um, The word is translated good news, but what is it good news about? What is the good news? Okay, Um, And I want to press you on that a little bit today because I think uh, we sort of like to minimize the gospel. And we don't think of it as great as it possibly is. Um, Is the gospel, is the good news that you can be saved from all the mistakes that you've made in your life? Some people are taught that. Um, Is the good news that you can go to heaven and that you don't have to go to hell? I'm sure you've heard that. Is the good news that you can be made right with God and somehow praise Him in your life and have a relationship with Him? Um, Is the good news that your life can be made better in some sort of way? Um, The truth is that all of these have some element of truth. um, But they're not in the gospel holistically in and of themselves. The gospel is bigger than that. Okay, Um, It's more profound than that. It's more spectacular than that. Um, The gospel... That I want you to see today as we look at this passage and as we look at all the passages we're going to talk about this weekend. is simply this. The gospel is, the good news is, that Jesus is the king. That's the good news. When you look at what the gospel writers say, when you look at what Paul says, when you look at the New Testament, the Old Testament, all of it points toward this one person who is going to be the king. Jesus. And he's going to be a king that's going to do spectacular things. All right? And he's already done spectacular things, and he's going to do more. He is a good and faithful and just king. He's better than any other king you can imagine. And Mark helps us to see this in these verses in the gospel. What I want to do today is I want to look at four things in this gospel. I want to look at four ways that John shows us that Jesus is the king. And I want to look at how, on the onset, when we look at those things, we immediately think, that's not such good news. In fact, that's kind of bad news for me, that Jesus is the king. But then I want to look at how actually it is the best possible news for you. Okay, So I want to look at each one of these things about how Mark shows us that Jesus is the king. How they begin to seem like bad news to us. But in the end we realize that they're actually the good news. 
So let's look at the beginning. At the beginning, we have this weird thing where this man is preaching in the wilderness. Mark opens up his gospel. There's this odd guy. He's wearing strange clothes. He's in the desert, and he's preaching to people this baptism of repentance, that they need to repent of their sins and be forgiven, and that this man is coming. He says um, um, that this one is coming um, of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Um, Basically, John is proclaiming that the king... The anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah is coming. All right. Um, most of the time when we think about John, we think about him as a New Testament character. Right? John the Baptist. We like to think about him that way. But I think it may be more healthy to think about John as an Old Testament character. Let me explain why. The message of the scriptures from the very beginning have been that human beings are broken. That human beings have fallen into sin and that we want to live uh, independent lives, where we're sort of the king of our own world, where we're, you know, we're born into the world and we want to be in charge of our own lives. We want to do our own thing. Um, you know, you hate it when somebody tells you what to do, right? Why is that? You know, you don't like it uh, when you're not in control of your life. That feeling that I told you about when I got off the plane was a terrifying feeling. Why is that? Well, it's because I want to be in control of my kingdom. I want to be in charge. And we're all sort of born into the world that way, broken. And uh, throughout Scripture, there's this kind of murmur. And it begins in the beginning uh, with people like um, Abraham or Moses. And moves to people like uh, the prophets, like Elijah uh, and uh, Isaiah. And we begin to hear this murmur of this person, this king, that's going to come. And he's going to fix what's broken about us and the world. And we hear more and more about this king, more and more about this king. Um, and we even hear Isaiah at the beginning of the passage where John is preaching. He preaches from Isaiah the prophet and he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way, the, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make your path straight. So we're get ready, this king is coming. And so this king is on the way. And, um, and, and John begins to quote about him, and he speaks of this king being far greater than anyone that he's ever seen, whose sandals he's not worthy to untie. Um, he, he, he paints this beautiful picture that this king is sort of coming. All right? he, the king is on his way. And then the very next verses, we see that Jesus comes. Okay, he's the king. Now, the problem with this, especially with, people, with us in America, is that we have severe misunderstandings about what a king is, about kingdoms. We, we don't like to talk about that. Um, you know, uh, there are several reasons for this. One is that, uh, you know, our kingdoms in the United States, when we think about the word kingdom, a lot of times we think about them as kingdoms with no kings. What's the, what do you think is the most popular kingdom that people think about in the United States? Can you take a guess? The Magic Kingdom. That's exactly right. Disney, which has no king. Where's the king? They have lots of princesses, but no stinking king, right? We, we, we think of kingdoms without kings today. Um, we also think of kingdoms in terms of places that have kings or queens that are defunct or that are just sort of puppets that, that don't really do anything, like England, for example, where the control of the government is not held by the monarchy anymore. They're just sort of figureheads that kind of have lots of money and, and make speeches and that sort of thing. But they have no real power anymore. Um, 
Also, kingdoms that we oftentimes think of are kingdoms that have evil kings. And that's probably the one, um, when you think about Bible stories or you think about um, other nations that have kings, oftentimes we think of them as uh, these sort of tyrannical dictators who are horrible to their people, that don't love their people, that are selfish in their rule and that sort of thing. And so our, our natural inclination as people is to reject the idea of kingdoms. We don't want them. Um, because we, one, don't really understand what a good kingdom could possibly look like. But two, also, kingdoms threaten us in our way of life here in the United States, which scares us too. Because, you know, as Americans, our politics are, we, we fight the monarchy off, right? You know, we, we, our, in our infancy as a country, our, our birth was out of a monarchy. We don't want that anymore. We don't want to be ruled over by one particular person. Uh, we're, we're uh, something very different here. We're a republic. Um, and so, as we look at the American way of life, we naturally reject this idea of someone being in control and having authority over us in a kingdom. Kingdoms also do this. This is frustrating. Uh, the idea of there's somebody being a king in your life threatens the idea of individualism in your life. That you can't be your own person. That you can't um, kind of control your own life and spin your own destiny in the way you want to. And so that frustrates us too as Americans. We don't like the idea of that. Um, but ultimately, the idea of kingdom really gets at us because it threatens our control. We don't like the idea of anyone being in control except ourselves. You're going to hear me talk about that a lot this weekend, that that's a fight that we fight in our lives all the time, is this idea of wanting to be in control, but having these realizations, these glimpses into the kingdom where we realize we're not. It happens a lot. Um, So it comes across as bad news that a kingdom is coming when we look at what John is saying. But the bottom line is it is good news. And it's good news because of this. Because all these thoughts we have about a kingdom are are misinformed. And the reasons we reject the kingdom are really selfish. When when we think about what a truly good king could be like, I think it, it begins to sort of turn us toward it a little bit. Because when we talk about Jesus being a king, when the scriptures talk about this king that's coming, he's a king that is good. And I mean utterly good. Always putting the, the, the needs of his kingdom ahead of himself. He's a king who is just. In other words, when things are evil in the kingdom, when things are horrible, uh, he punishes those things. It says in Scripture over and over again that God is going to, will not leave the wicked unpunished. That he's going to um, undo the unjust things. He's a king who's kind, um, who's patient, uh, who's faithful who's long-suffering, who doesn't give us what we deserve in our lives. He's he's a king that is um, unlike any that we've ever seen before. Um, And and so that begins to show us maybe this kind of king is different. Maybe it is good news. He's a king, not only that is good in that sense, but I want you to think about this. He's a king who's willing to die to set you free. He's a king who's willing to give up his own life to put yours ahead of his. That's not like the kings we think about. And that's good news. Not bad news. It's good news. He's a king that's come to bring peace. To make things right in this world. To bring shalom. So that's the first thing I want you to see is that the king is coming. The second thing that we see in this passage is uh, that the king is crowned. 
let me explain that to you. Look at the next part where it talks about Jesus being baptized. Um, we see John baptizing Jesus and this really weird thing, ha- thing happens where uh, Jesus comes up and the water's coming off of Jesus and he looks into the heavens and the heavens part and the Holy Spirit like visibly comes down on him and descends on him like a dove upon his head and we hear the Father's voice saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. All right? It's one of the only, one of the few places in Scriptures we see the Trinity all in one place. Um, but what's beautiful about it is what it's signifying. And I don't think we realize this. Is that when, when you think about kings uh, in, in history and particularly in the Bible, uh, kings are anointed. Y'all ever heard that before? Anointing is taking oil or water or some sort of substance. And before someone became the king, they would rub those things on their head, signifying that, that, that God was giving them authority to become the king. And usually the person who did this was um, a religious type person, a shaman or a priest or something like that. Usually is the one who does this to the king. A, a good way of thinking about it in today's world is when um, someone crowns a king in a country, like the king of England, when, he'll, when he's eventually crowned. Uh, it, it's, it's a priest, it's, it's, it's a, a bishop that crowns him, the king of England. And by the crown being placed on his head, it's a symbol that now he has authority. The authority has been given to him and he can rule as the king. All right? And what's amazing here is that God is anointing Jesus when he baptizes him with his spirit. He comes out of the water and the spirit descends upon Jesus, signifying that God is saying, this is the king. This is the one John just told you about. It's the one Elijah told you about. It's the one Isaiah told you about. It's the one one we've been looking forward to all this point. Here he is. He's the one. He is the king. And it's sort of a beautiful picture of him being crowned as the king in his ministry. Um, now, this feels like bad news to us um, because if Jesus is the king, then who's not the king? If a crown is placed upon his head, that means the crown comes off of our head. And that's very threatening to us. We don't like that. Um, it's scary and frustrating to us. Um, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but, you know, we're sort of bent toward wanting to be the king of our own world, toward independence, wanting to do our own thing. I can remember, I have a little, I have two little girls, one that's six, one that's four, and when the middle-aged one, Rosie's little spitfire was, uh, I guess she was, uh, she was getting potty trained, so I guess she was like three. We took her to the church nursery one day and put her in the nursery, and, um, she was just getting to the point where she was telling people, you know, she had to poop. And so she, she goes to the nursery lady and she says, I need to poop. And the nursery lady's like, well, great, let's go to the bathroom. He takes her by a little hand and walks her to the bathroom. And right before they get there, Rosie goes, wait, 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 wait. If I poop in my pants, you're just going to have to clean it up anyway. And she poops in her pants. Right in front of the lady. Right in front of the lady. I'm like, what are you? It's just this like rampant, like... Look, you know, I thought you were in control, but I'm in control. I'm going to poop on myself. And that's the idea. You know, from, from the very early portions of our lives, from the very early portions of our lives, we, we want to be in control of what we do. Okay, we want to be in control of our lives. And we spend our whole lives sort of in this little kingdom that we make for ourselves. And we, you know, we use people to get what we want. We try to convince people to, you know, make our kingdom even bigger. You know, we, we, we try to advance our own name in the world. We want people to think well of us. The way we dress is affected by our kingdom. The way we look. All these things, all these things you think about when you get up in the morning 
are all because you want your kingdom to get bigger. You want your kingdom to expand. And when Jesus is anointed the king, basically, the idea is that has to stop now. There's a better king than you. And that's the difficulty of this. That's the rub. That's what makes this so hard. Is that the idea of me being out of control, the idea of me not being okay, not being in control of my life, is the way it's supposed to be? What? What is happening here? Um, what is this king doing? That seems like incredibly bad news. And not only will we, um, will we exercise our authority in our little kingdom to get what we want, but, but even when we have this itch to, to make things more important than they are, you know how like... Um, Georgia football, you know, like we, we love, lots of people around here love Georgia football. We make it more important than we should. Go dogs. Or Mercer football, you know, we, just kidding. Um, <laughs> who has the better record? I said that. Um, um, anyway, you know, we try to, we make these things in our lives, created things, we'll make them more important than they should be. And it can be anything from sports to a relationship, um, power, um, to, to wanting control in our lives, to, um, it could be anything, approval in our lives. All these things, we, we make them more important than we do. And you know why we do that? We take these things that are created and we make them more important because if they're the God of our lives, at least we still have control over them. We're still the king. And that's what we want. And that's why it's bad news when we see Jesus being baptized. It's frustrating to us. But it's actually good news. And I want to talk about that for just a minute because um, it's good news because Jesus is a king um, with the power and the authority to do what we can't do. He's the one with the power and the authority given to him by God himself to fix the world. We're going to talk about that on Sunday morning. We're going to talk about how Jesus is not only a king who came to save you and give you a get out of hell free card if that's what you want. But he's a king that came to do much more to fix the broken world, to make the sad things untrue, to fix your broken families, to fix your broken hearts, to take away your sadness, to dry your tears. He's a king who comes to fix the world, not just you, but he's also a king who comes to fix you, who's come to change your heart, to make you into something beautiful again, to begin to awaken something inside of you that craves more than yourself. He's the king who's come to show you that you're not in control so that you'll give your life over to the one who is and begin to see what true life is really like. He is a king who has come to do these amazing things, to change us from the inside out, to make us different, to take off our masks so the world can see who we really are and that it's not bad because of him. Uh, he's a king who's come to do these sort of things. And you don't have the power to do that in your life, but he does. And that's why it's so good. That's why it's really good news that he is anointed. So we see him coming. We see him uh, crowned. And the third thing we see is that we see him in combat. That sounds really strange, but it was the only C word I could think of. Um, look at verse 12. Uh, we see Jesus being tempted in the, uh, in the desert. It says, The Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, uh, but the angels were ministering to him. Now, Usually when we read this stuff about Jesus going into the desert and being tempted by the devil, one, we think it's kind of silly because we have a hard time believing that the devil's really a, a real thing. But this is true. He's taken into the desert by the Spirit that, was, that he was baptized with. 
runs him out into the, into the, to the desert for 40 days. And um, he's tired and he's hungry and he's being tempted the entire time by this demon, this uh, Satan, this fallen angel. And he's trying to tempt him to do things that he should not do. He's trying to tempt him into sinning. And he faces all kinds of temptations while he's there. Um, But he does not succumb to any of them. Now, what most people have probably taught you about this is a little unfair. Because what people like to do with this passage, they like to say, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. And as he does so, um, he kind of teaches us techniques and strategies to deal with temptation in our own lives. Okay, because this, this passage is expounded in the other Gospels. And it talks about exactly how he is tempted in some ways and that sort of stuff. And so we look at that and we're like, ah, that's good. I can learn this. You know, I can quote Deuteronomy to the devil and I can uh, pray harder and, you know, so on and so forth. And he'll help me when I'm tempted. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is going out into the wilderness to face temptation because we can't and won't face temptation in our lives. This is the beginning of Jesus doing something for us as the king. Combating the devil, combating temptation, combating sin, because we won't. And if you look, you can look back throughout Scripture. You can look at Adam and Eve, tempted in the Garden of Eden. What do they do? They both sin. You look at Israel throughout their time as a, as a nation, constantly being tempted. They constantly fall back. They constantly fall. They constantly leave God. You look at other things like in Judges and the kingships and so on and so forth. The, the, the nations are constantly falling into temptation. Then you look at us, you know, and... You know, I can't drive down the stinking road without getting angry at somebody, you know? Our hearts are just easily tempted to sin in our lives. We desperately need someone to do that for us. We desperately need someone else's account. Because ours is bankrupt. And so Jesus comes, this king comes not only uh, to deal with with temptation on his own, but to deal with it for us. Now, it seems like bad news to us because, once again, we're sort of like, I don't like the idea of someone fighting my battles for me. I want to fight my own battles. You know, I want to be in control of my own life. I want to be able to do this. I want, In the end, I want to be able to say, God, I did this. I made this happen. But the truth of this matter is that we won't. History proves it. Our lives prove it. Every day, we are broken. We are broken. We fail as our own kings. And we need a king who can do what we could not do. And that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came um, not only to bring judgment, but to bear it for his people. Not only to make those who have sinned punished for their sinfulness but to bear that punishment for some. To bear that punishment for his children. To take on that punishment that they deserve. Um, lately at our church, we've been uh, dealing with a lot of really weird pastoral issues at our church. Um, sex offenders. Crazy people in our youth group. Um, all sorts of really bizarre things are happening. And, um, and after a certain point, you just have to say, why are all these crazy people at our church? You know, what, what is going on? Why is this? And, um, and I think my answer is pretty, is pretty easy answer. It's because the gospel is just really clear there. And it's attractive to really broken, 
screwed up people who know they can't be their own king anymore. They're at the bottom of the barrel. They're at the end of their rope. They can't do this. And so they need a king that can do it for them. And they hear every week that this is a safe place for you to come. And you can get to know him. And he can change your life. And he can fix your life in the end. Far better than you could ever fix it yourself. So it's good news that this is a king who fights for us in our lives. And then the last thing we see is sort of the command that the king gives at the very end. Where Jesus comes on the scene in verse 14. And he comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news. Saying this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he tells you what to do. Repent. And believe in the gospel. Now, um, if I were to if I were to ask you guys, or just ask folks around here, what it means to be a Christian, I think uh, people immediately would go into sort of resume mode. You know, it means you go to church. It means uh, that you read your Bible. It means you pray. It means you're good to people, so on and so forth. You start giving me this long list of things that Christians do. Um, but that's not what the question. The question is, what is a Christian? What does that mean? For you? What is a Christian? And um, when we look at this passage and others, I think the best way to define a Christian is simply this. Is a Christian is someone who receives very good news. A Christian is someone who receives very good news. And that good news is that Jesus is the King. And there's a real sense in which you receive it for a first time. That you, you believe. You have faith and you trust Jesus for the first time. You turn and you believe in him. But there's also a sense in which we have to receive it all the time. That the gospel is something that we need every single day. Because every single day we fight this battle where we're over here in our little kingdom that we like. And we want to, you know, we want, we want to advance. But yet Jesus is in this kingdom over here. And we're like drawn between the two all the time in our lives. We feel this tug of our heart. You know, that I want to be the king, but he is. And that's, that's a fight that we fight every day. And we realize that he's the king that we need. And we have to move toward him um, in our lives. And, and um, we have to believe that he is the better king every day. Every day. And it's very difficult. And I think those of you that are Christians in the room know this. Okay? We're going to talk more about that. That how the way to glory, the way to, to being fixed in this world, for you to be fixed and for the world to be fixed is the way of suffering. We're going to talk about that as the week continues on. But it's news that we have to receive all the time. Jesus tells us that we have to do two things. He says that he said he wants you to repent and he wants you to believe. Okay, now, I know some of you have been churched up and you know that kind of language. I want For those of you that don't, I want to quickly tell you what those mean. Repenting just means to turn. Hey, it means to turn away from <clears throat> yourself as the king or whatever is the king of your life to the real king, to the real king. It means turning away from those things to him. And moving toward Jesus in your life. Um, And believing the gospel, what we sometimes call faith, is simply trusting that Jesus is the king. It's trusting him. It's more than just simply believing it. Um, We see other places in the scriptures where it says demons believe that Jesus is the son of God and is the king. But we trust that Jesus is the son of God, is the king. Um, there's this illustration about this uh, famous French acrobat named the Great Blunden. Some of you might have heard this before. He was this really famous uh, tightrope walker back in the 1920s. And he did all these crazy things where he would 
walk across skyscrapers. You know, he would walk tight ropes between skyscrapers. Um, there was one where he walked between skyscrapers and set up a little stove on the tight rope and like cooked an egg and ate it and then walked back across the other side. Really bizarre things. <clears throat> uh, and he was going to sit up and do this amazing walk across Niagara Falls. And, you know, it's the 1920s, so they don't have television and all this crazy stuff. And so people would gather for these huge events, and they came to see the Great London. And they gathered around him um, as he's walking across, he's preparing to walk across this tightrope across Niagara Falls, which had never been done before. And um, they're cheering him on, and they're, they're screaming, Blunden, Blunden. And so he, he steps out on the tightrope, and he walks across Niagara Falls. He turns around, and he walks back. And the crowd goes crazy. They're like, yes, been, this is amazing. This is fantastic. Uh, and, and, and Blunden looks at them and he goes, how many of you believe that I can do this again? And they're like, yes, we believe you can do it again. Yes, do it once more. And he says, how many of you believe that I can do it with one of you on my shoulders? And they're like, oh, yes, please do that. That's fantastic. Please do it. And they're going crazy. And he goes, who's going to get on my shoulders? Not a sound. No one volunteers, right? They believed in him. They wouldn't get on his shoulders. And when Jesus says he's the king, he's not saying for you to just to believe that rationally. But he's saying, get on his shoulders. Trust him. Believe that he can do what you cannot do. Believe that he's come to fix the broken world. And you're part of that, that he's trying to fix. You see, this is hard. I'm not going to pretend like believing that Jesus is the king is an easy thing. It's very hard. I struggle with it. In the last two years of my life, I've struggled with this tremendously. But while it's hurt very badly, it's also been the most soothing and healing thing in my life to know that he's the king. And I believe the same is true for you. Um, the difficulty is that sometimes when I pray and I pray that Jesus would come and do something in my life, I'm scared to do it because I know it's probably going to hurt. Sometimes this is what the king does. It's hard. It's not easy. But what I want you to begin to see is that it's worth it. He's a king worth living for. And he's a king worth dying for every day. Because in the end, it will be worth it. He's a king who loves you when you're not okay. And he's a king who loves you enough to make you okay. And he will make you okay in the end. We're going to talk more about this as we continue uh, this weekend. As we, as we look at what it means for him to be the king. But I want you to think about two things, two questions tonight before you go to your small groups. And the first question is this. Um, if Jesus really is the king, what are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with him if he's the king? I mean, if he's truly the most powerful, most knowledgeable, most amazing sovereign of the universe, and he presses that in on you, what are you going to do with him? The second question may be harder than the first. And that's this. If Jesus really is the king, what's he doing with you? 
You're not here by accident. The king rigged it. You're here because the king is true and real and he's doing something. God is at work. Now, it may mean that for the first time in your life, you're going to trust that. It may mean for some of you that, you know, you're thinking, if he's really the king, then I'm going to have to forgive my parents. For some of you, it may mean if he's really the king, I'm going to have to stop sleeping with the girl or guy I love. For some of you, it may mean, you know, I've got to stop drinking so much. I've got to change. I've got to stop being so angry all the time. Things have got to change in me. What is he doing in me? He's not an idle king. He's a king who stoops down and loves us enough to die for us and make us well. What is Jesus doing with you? Let's pray. Father, I ask um, that you would come here and that you would help us tonight. That as the angels came and ministered to Jesus while he was being tempted, that you would send messengers to us tonight to help us and minister to us as our hearts feel broken, as we feel selfish, as we feel as if we're on our own kings, would you help us, Father, to begin to move from one kingdom to the other and to see that Jesus being the king is truly good news and that we would want him. And we pray this in Jesus' name because he is the king. Amen.